if you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome, everyone, to today's show. I am thrilled to be joined today by Todd Churches. Todd is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based management consulting firm specializing in leadership development and executive coaching. He is a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches and a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU. He also is a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University, a TEDx speaker, and the author of the book, Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. I'm really looking forward to it. Todd, welcome to the show. Kathy, thanks for having me. I look forward to it. So let's dig in. I'd love to actually start with the second half of your book title, which is leadership, and then we'll get to visual leadership. But I'd love to just have you share with us how you think about leadership, because I think there's some interesting aspects of how you think about leadership. Yeah, there are two camps I found uh, when it comes to leadership. In fact, I attended an NYU symposium of uh, leadership professors at the university, and then one in the capital L leadership. You're only a leader if you have a leadership title, if you're a CEO or VP. And then the small L leadership, which is everyone's a leader, even if you're just leading your own life. And I fell into that camp. In fact, in my NYU class, um, at the beginning of the class, first session, I say, oh, just for curiosity, how many people here are leaders? Show of hands. And people don't know. No one really raises their hand. And I say, by the end of tonight's session, I'm going to ask that question again, and you're all going to be raising your hands because we're going to redefine what it means to be a leader. So to answer your question, in a long way, it basically is, uh, you know, we all lead. You have to lead in order to succeed, and leadership is about influence. It is about getting things done through and with other people. It's about having a vision and turning that vision into reality. I'm curious, do you think that people don't see themselves as leaders because they feel like they, like you said, like have to have a title or are, are people afraid to lead in some respects, both in a job kind of capacity or in a life capacity? I think if you ask someone if you're, they're a manager, it's more black and white, right? You know that because it's on your business card. But to ask someone if you're a leader, it's kind of like, you know, are you a guru of what you do? Or, you know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, should I call myself a leader? And based on whose definition? Right. So I think that's the reason that uh, that is such a tricky question. Mm. So then with that, I'd love to have you jump into like defining visual leadership. And part of this is because I think when people see the title of your book or hear the title of your book, I should say I'm seeing it because I can see you live and can see it in the background. Uh, But when they see that term, I think they might simply just see it as being about using pictures to communicate. And yet there's a lot more in terms of how you think about it. So you define it a bit more broadly. So can you give us a little bit more background around that? Sure. I do an exercise in my class and workshops where I ask people, 
I say, when you think of the word leadership, what words or phrases come to mind? And the word vision tends to be the number one word mentioned. So leadership is inseparable from vision. And who you are and how you lead is inseparable from the lens through which you see the world. So looking backwards, your leadership style and approach and how you lead has to do with your background, your upbringing, your life experiences, your training, all of those things. And in terms of the future, do you have a vision? Do you have a picture in your mind's eye of what you want the future to look like? So visual leadership is both backwards looking and forward looking. And if you look at the title of my book, and many people don't even notice it, it's a single word with a shared capital L. And a lot of people don't spell it that way or don't even know this because you're not looking, because you don't expect to see that, right? So that's a perfect example of how what we see and what we don't see has a lot to do with the lens through which we see the world. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, this was something that I was, I was curious about this idea of like vision. And then I, I kind of went to, and I do think you think speak about this in the book, this idea of envisioning. And you talk about this concept of like, what do you see? And it, it really made me pause. And you, you bring forward how Leonardo da Vinci coined a term, like, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, sapere videre, meaning knowing how to see. And I, this was really interesting for me, both from a standpoint of, you know, thinking about stepping into a leadership role within an organization, but also for one's life, if you will, because I think that visioning and how you see can be a bit intimidating. So, I mean, so, and I, and I wonder if that's why also people don't step into leadership roles for, in, again, in organizations or in their life, because they're kind of like, wow, I have to have a vision. That's the word that comes to mind. So, and I need to be able to see. Um, and so can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so talking about literally being and noticing people and recognizing things. And sometimes it's more of a metaphor. It's like, what do you see versus what do you miss? Um, and speaking of metaphors, which we'll talk about more about later, sometimes as uh, we need to look through a, a, um, a telescope, right? We look out into the future, we look far and wide. Sometimes we look at things through a microscope. We look down and deep into the details. Sometimes we look through a kaleidoscope, right? And, and see this, or a prism, where it kind of distorts reality, but we see the colors and possibilities, right? So um, when if you wear glasses, you know, if you change the lens of your prescription, you might see things clearly. If you have progressives like I do, you kind of like you're trying to see. So it's all about, so it's a, it's metaphorically seeing, but it's also about, let's say you're imagining, you say, we need someone to do X. There might be someone right in front of you, right on your team who has that capability or that untapped potential, but you don't even see it because you always think, a real life example, I tell that in my book, years ago, earlier in my career, I temped at Disney and I was taught the temp. So I answered phones and did filing. And one time they needed someone to edit a document. And I said, oh, I'll be happy to do it. And it's like, oh, you're just the temp. Meanwhile, I have a bachelor's in English and a master's degree in communication, and yet I was just the temp, right? So they had a resource right in front of them that was not acknowledged. Even when I got the courage and confidence to raise my hand, they basically slapped it down, right? So that's an example of, from a management leadership perspective, what's right, what or who is right in front of you that has potential that you're not tapping into. Mm -hmm. There's so many metaphors and things that you brought in there, and it kind of you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is like the importance of listening, but really what I'm in all of what you just described is like the importance of seeing, right? And seeing through so many different lenses. And I loved all the different metaphors that you were using there from a telescope to a microscope to a kaleidoscope, which is really, really interesting. I mean, when I was thinking about the book and in, in kind of taking in all of what I was reading, what I was taking away was that 
visual leadership perhaps is about being a more effective leader in your work and your life, as we've talked about, and that all of what you share in the book is really about helping you be more effective in your thinking, decision-making, and in your communication. Like, is that how you think about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you just mentioned, we could also be, you know, we're talking about seeing, right, through the eyes. And I, I use the term to see something in your mind's eye, which is ter a term coined by Shakespeare and Hamlet. When Hamlet saw the ghost of his father, he didn't know if it was an apparition, a real ghost, or a figment of his imagination. So I said, I think I see my father in my mind's eye. So Shakespeare coined that term. So what does that mean? We could see something in our head, but other people don't see it because we're not physically looking at it, right? So, or two people can look at the same thing and process it or filter it very differently, right? So there's all these different ways. And we can also see through our ears. And people say, how could you see? That's kind of a mixed metaphor, right? But if you see something with your eyes, you can look at a picture or an image or a drawing or whatever. But you can also listen for metaphors. You can listen for stories, which we'll be talking about. And we, we paint a picture in our mind's eye of what we're hearing. And a real-life example of that is if I'm listening to a baseball game on the radio, I'm a big Yankees and Mets fan, I might say to my wife, oh, did you see that catch? And she's like, where? I'm like, on the radio, because I'm listening, I'm watching the game in my mind, because I know, you know, while listening to it on the radio. So sometimes our senses get mixed up. So we're, we want to leverage all of our senses. So while our focus is on the visual, um, we, we don't want to lose sight of, and that's a metaphor right there, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we need to leverage all of our senses to take in information and to process it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind in that when I'm listening to you is, you know, I was listening to another one of your talks and you were, and this is probably in the book as well, where you were saying that leadership includes like reflection, introspection and connection. And, you know, part of what I hear you, I mean, I don't know where, if that, if what you just shared falls into this, because there's a, like part of what I'm hearing you say and what you're describing is like making sure that you're taking it all in, right? And it's kind of like you, you write about in the book. So it, we hear how people don't have time, right? And they don't have time to pause for reflection or for taking it all in. So that's an aspect of what you're, your model, it seems to me, that is really critical for people. Like, again, it's a way of seeing and taking all, all inputs into consideration. Yeah, like just for example, let's say you're, you know, I know a lot of your podcasts do with people's careers. And, and so if you think about it, your know, reflection is about looking backwards as in the mirror, either looking at yourself or looking behind you. Introspection is about looking inward into your mind, but also your heart. And connection is about con make, connecting the dots between you and the outside world and or with other people. And in my TED talk, I talk very, talk very briefly. It's in my class. I, I spent an hour or more talking about it. But the leadership journey and the image from inside a car is a metaphor. When you look out the um, front window, the windshield, and down the road, that's about the future, right? We can only see as far as our eyes can see over the horizon. Beyond that, it's unknown, just like in our life and in our career. Rearview mirror, how did we get here? And the baggage we brought with us, our life experiences, good and bad. Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, reminds us that wherever we are won't get us to where we want to be without making some changes and continuing to learn and to grow. And the dashboard represents your metrics for success. How do you gauge, just as in a car, you would gauge the the fuel and, and the temperature and, and the mileage. How do you measure your, your own life success? Peter Drucker said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So how do you manage, measure and manage your own life and your career qualitatively or quantitatively? How do you gauge how well you're doing on your journey, right? So 
the metaphor goes beyond that in the expanded version, but just to stop right there for a second, if you think about it, we are all on a collective journey together, but each individual is on their own personal leadership and career journey. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because I, I, what I love about using that is, and I'm curious, is that a metaphor, Todd, or is that one of your mental models? How do you think about that example? Yeah, I talk about visual imagery, mental models, metaphor, and storytelling, and it actually is all four, right? Because you could say it's a visual image because I just described this picture from inside the car. It's also a metaphor for our life. It's also a model of past, present, and future. And it's a story, if we share a story about where we came from and how we got here and where we want to go. So I love that you asked that question because those four categories that I break things down to are just for the purpose of simplifying our minds around, but when we combine four or even a number of those together, um, they're even more powerful and more effective. Yeah, that's so great. I love that. And I and I think that is an illustration of in and of itself of visual leadership and the power of using visuals in, in this way, right? And to help guide us and to frankly see differently and to help us again, as I kind of said, like make decisions or make your thinking clear, or like you're saying, you're taking it to storytelling, like how you communicate, et cetera. So, and this was one that really resonated with me as well, just as you reflected and, and demonstrated from like a career perspective. And I think, you know, oftentimes people, you know, don't realize that they need to pause, they need to reflect, look back, they need to pause and again, assess like, where am I now? And then, like I said, from a leading themselves from a career perspective, actually go ahead and look forward and kind of say like, yes, you can't be on, see beyond a certain horizon, but you know, in what direction do you want to be pointing yourself? And I've, I've talked with others on the podcast about this because I, I think that some people debate this, right? Like you, you can't necessarily forecast a future if you're not exposed to certain things, right? You can't, you know, know what career roles are necessarily going to be out in the future per se. But if you're going, moving forward without any sense of direction of where you want to go, I think that that's dangerous as well. I don't know if yeah. you have thoughts on that. Yeah. You just reminded me of a quote from Alice in Wonderland where she says, I think to the, I forget if it's the Mad Hatter or to the Cheshire Cat, which way should I go? And he said, where, where are you trying to get to? And she's like, it doesn't really matter. And he says, then it doesn't really matter which way you go. Right. Mm. So if you don't have a destination, if you don't begin with the end in mind, one of Stephen Covey's seven habits, then it doesn't matter which way, which is fine. Sometimes you just want to go randomly or aimlessly and see where you end up. But then you can't say, oh, I didn't get to where I wanted to or needed to do within a certain time frame. Like, for example, I lived in L.A. for 10 years. But then when I moved back from New York to New York, from L.A., my brother flew out to New from New York to L.A. And we got in my car and we drove cross country together. And we had a deadline. We had to be back within, I forget, it was like two weeks or so. And we're driving, driving across country. There's some places we needed to be at a certain time. But other places, it's like if we're driving and there was a sign that says rodeo five o'clock, Let's get off the road and go watch a rodeo, right? So it's kind of like sometimes the best um, life experiences are those spontaneous ones that just come up. Some of the best jobs I've had were jobs that came out of the blue and while others that I was perfect for, I didn't get, right? So I was saying earlier, one of the metaphors in the HR field, we often talk about people's career path as if they're stepping stones that are neatly laid out and it's a stroll through the park. I say my career was a career roller coaster, not a path with ups and downs, twists and turns, exhilarating highs, terrifying plummets, not knowing what's around the bend. So that's my career. Because when people say, you know, sometimes my students will say, oh, I, I want to do a TED Talk, write a book and be an executive coach. How do I do that? I'm like, well, flounder around for about 20 years, get laid off, get fired, work for really horrible bosses, and then we'll talk. 
right? So a lot of times people just want that shortcut metaphor and they want to do the work or sometimes you just have to live life and, and try different things to see where you fit. Um, and I was just going to say, I was listening to one of your podcasts where you view E and you talked about taking a sabbatical, right? Hitting that pause button as a metaphor to just stop and take a breather and figure out, all right, what's next on my journey, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which brings forward one of the other metaphors you have in the book. I think it was in the metaphor chapter where you talk about, you know, using the remote control for your life, yeah. right? And that's, and I think that's what's so great about the examples that you give was how powerful different visuals can kind of just allow you to think differently, right? And so I kind of wonder, Todd, if you encourage people to like, just like, I have a glass of water sitting here. Like, what would that make? Of course, there's, do you look at life with a, as a glass half full, yeah. glass half empty? But I mean, there's other ways of like, how else could you utilize that, right? To help you think differently. And I don't know if you encourage people to kind of do that. Do you ever do that in your workshops where you just have people kind of play with visuals in that way? Yeah, I love the use of the word play. Our mutual friend, how we met, Aisha Bursell, is very big on play and playfulness. Playfulness, And she has her playful bunny in her book that represents the fact that, you know, to innovate, to create, to come up with new ideas, you can't do it under pressure. You need to do it in the spirit of play, right? So yeah, just a few examples. This will encourage people if there's a video version. I may ask someone, I'm holding up a curious George doll for those who are listening. I may ask someone, I keep this on my desk to remind me to always be curious, always dig deeper, always ask why, maybe even get into a little trouble along the way. I'm holding up Gumby right now. If you know Gumby, it reminds me to be flexible and to bend over backwards to serve our clients. I'd say there's no magic wand. If you want to you know, make changes in your life, you need to do the work. You can't just wait. So I have tons of these. So I'll stop right here. But that's but yeah. So when I'm doing my workshops, I'll very often put out props and things that are tangible that people can touch. And But even if you just don't see them, you could say, you know, picture, you know, you know, Here's my elephant in the room that reminds me, what's the big thing that we're not all talking about, but it's sitting there and we're all pretending it doesn't exist, right? So um, again, more where those come from, but I keep them around me just to remind me because um, visual serves as a catalyst to innovation and trigger new ideas. So the worst way to come up with new ideas or solutions to something is to just to stare at a blank screen or a blank piece of paper, right? I get my best ideas in the shower, sometimes flipping TV channels, taking a walk around the block. So all of these different things. I once did a workshop up in Lake George, upstate New York, which was on a lake in a very rustic setting. And I gave people colored pens and big index cards and they had to go out into nature and just draw to the best of their ability images or objects from nature that were a metaphor for leadership. It could have been a tree, a boat, the waves on the lake, you know, whatever but it stimulates the right brain, the creative side that we so often don't use. So I always talk about facts, figures, and feelings, the three Fs. So, so often in the business world, we make decisions based on facts and figures, or we think we do, but it really is about feelings, right? The facts and figures back them up, but ultimately we go with our guts and our passions and things like that. So those are just a few uh, thoughts that, that relate to what we're talking about. Yeah, well, and what you're reminding me of there is what the work session that we met in and where Aisha was having us do the, these creative warm-ups, right? And what I love about all the, just the examples that you're sharing and relating it to innovation, because really we're all called to be innovative in different ways in our lives, right? And especially in today's work world, and these small 
you know, these things that you just rattled off or even these like different metaphors that you have around you, everyone could play with or can, you know, and Aisha was sharing with us these different creative exercises. And it was so lovely to be together as a group and to practice these creative exercises and really within such a short period of time, because she only gave us what, like two minutes to kind of play with these and, you know, drawing somebody else who's on the screen and then emailing them that picture, you know, taking a photograph of something that's around your surroundings and sharing it with somebody. Like these are things that are quick, but they had such a huge impact in, you know, shifting one's mindset. I know for me, really shifting how I was feeling and like this feeling of delight and connection and play, like you were saying. So it's just interesting how simple it is really to kind of bring some of these things in. And yet it can there's often a lot of barriers. And I'm curious, like in your workshops, like, do you get resistance to people kind of wanting to play in this way? Or, and how do you kind of overcome some of that? Yeah, I mean, I was doing a, a visual thinking, visual leadership workshop for a group of 20 CEOs from this group. And you start handing out colored pens and, and big pieces of paper. And they're like, what is this, kindergarten? Five minutes later, they're asking for different colors and can we have more time? And so even if you suffer from ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome, we could all draw, because I always say, if you ask a group of kids, how many of you can draw, they all raise hand, but you ask a group of adults, people are more hesitant. So have we lost our ability and skills or our confidence, or it's just not on our radar, metaphor, to use drawing to get up at a flip chart or a whiteboard or to napkin sketch out an idea so someone, so you could download it from your head and onto some medium so other people can look at it and say, okay, now I see what you're saying. So real life example, I wrote an article for Inc. Magazine, and anyone could just Google it. It's called, Can You Draw What Your Company Does? So I do an exercise where I have people do that. And I did it with a group of salespeople in the pharmaceuticals industry. And one guy drew a picture of a big whale eating up goldfish saying, we're, we're eating up the competition. But the vice president said, that's not accurate at all because some of our competitors are much bigger than us. So it's not like we're a whale and they're goldfish. It's more like, and he started to think for a second, he said, it's more like they're sharks because they just bite off the business and leave their customers bleeding and swim away with their, you know, we're more like dolphins. We are friend, we're smart, we're friendly, we're, cu we're cuddly, we communicate, we're warm and feeling, we're empathetic. So the dolphin became their mascot for how they were gonna behave and treat customers. So it went from whale versus goldfish to dolphin versus shark, but we wouldn't have met, reached that point without this exercise and failing and trying and playing with different concepts. So that's a real life example of how this can be used. So this is not just fluffiness or playfulness. This is a way of basically um, so if you, and I say, if you can play Pictionary or Charades with your friends and family, then you have the skills and the tools to get up at the whiteboard and sketch something out. In fact, one, one CEO said to the other, after they sketched out what they did, because he kind of drew, drew out a mind map and a storyboard and a process map, this guy said, I've known you for 15 years. I never really knew what you did. And I just got it in less than three minutes when you explain your drawing to me. So that's like a real life example of how effective this is in practical terms. Oh, I love it. And just even that example of going back to like the dolphin versus a whale versus a shark, like immediately, right? You you can envision what that means and what it implies, right? So without having to use words. So I could have shown you the pictures, but I was able to visually explain it so you can picture it in your mind's eye. So you got it just as well as if I had shown it to you. And that's, again, the power of visual communication and not just having to use you know tangible, physical, visual images to do this. 
Right. I think what's so interesting too is like how many people even like to, I mean, I like to write, but so many people don't really like to yeah. write these days. And it's kind of like, you know, I need to be, I mean, what I love about this conversation is it's getting into me. I know like one of, I can deal with a lot of complexity. My challenge is to simplify. And part of what I'm taking away from this conversation, Todd, is like, these are tools for simplification, yeah. right? Um, and for, and because of that simplification, really for under deeper understanding um, amongst both for yourself as well as with others, importantly, right? Um, yeah, we need to think about what is our what is going to resonate with our audience. Uh, you know, if if you're a numbers person, one of my chapters in my book is called "How My Cardiologist Almost Gave Me a Heart Attack." I don't know if you got to that chapter, but long story short, my cardiologist came in. I first time seeing him, and he said, based on your test results, um, you have a I feel he said you have a 10%, 5% chance of having a heart attack within the next 10 years. I almost fainted and passed out on the table. But I said, doesn't that mean there's a 95% chance that I won't? He said, yeah, that's another way of looking at it. So he thought he was being such, you know, giving me the good news. I thought I was going to die, you know, within, within the next 10 minutes. So um, again, was what the, was the data he gave me wrong? No. But was that the message he meant to convey? Not at all, right? So, so often we either bore people to death with statistics or we just throw numbers and digits out there and leave it to other people to interpret. This is where storytelling comes in, right? It's the context of the numbers and the story behind it and the meaning of the numbers. Um, and so many people just think numbers are just going to explain what they're talking about. So we need to, like, you're, you know, one of the exercises I do in my NYU class, which is leadership for HR professionals, if you're talking to finance or technology or marketing, you need to speak their language, right? If you want a budgetary approval for an uh, LMS, first of all, what is an LMS? It's a learning management system. But if the CFO doesn't even know what that means, let alone why you need it, you're not going to get that budget approved, right? So we need to kind of figure out, all right, how do I influence? How do I inform? How do I persuade by using all of these techniques so people can see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are the, I wanted to come back to mental models because this is one of the things that I think um, we've alluded to and, and is one of those things that can help in these kind of decision-making. And I think, I think of them as visual, visual frameworks that can kind of help in decision-making. And I wanted to just have you talk about mental models a little bit more about like, just why do you think they're powerful? And almost like, I'm also curious, like almost if you advocate that we you know, you offer a ton of them in the book. So I encourage people to check them out. But I also wonder if you encourage people to create their own. I do. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm right now working on a workshop I'm going to be doing uh, on the magic of mental models in September. So I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, September, October, I'm not sure. But yeah, the, the expression, we need to think outside the box has become a cliche, but you can't think outside the box until you have a box with stuff in it. Right. So when you have a model or a framework, it's a visual representation of complex. It's a way of simplifying complexity and putting things into categories or um, labeling things. So, for example, um, a map, a subway map of New York, as an example, is a visual representation of, of, of how to get around from point A to point B. There are colored subway lines like the yellow line is, you know, goes up the east side. The red line goes up the west side. They're numbered or lettered. So there's a coding system. There's a framework. Here's the thing. It is not geographically accurate. And there's a quote by an English philosopher whose name was George Box, which is an amazing name for someone who works around frameworks. Um, he said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I love that quote. They're wrong because they're not 100% an accurate representation of reality. They're useful, in fact, in terms of giving us information that we can 
make decisions with or that will inform us, right? So if you think about it, a company's organizational chart is a framework that shows reporting relationships. I just mentioned a map. Um, many people are familiar with Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid or a four box matrix. And there are millions of them, SWOT analysis, Stephen Covey's, or which is the Eisenhower matrix. He popularized it so he gets credit. The time management matrix, right? With the, the four quadrants. Um, so there's a million different types of models and frameworks but again, it helps us to simplify complexity, see solutions, and define problems in a way that we might not otherwise be able to do without them. So that's mm -hmm. the value and the power mm -hmm. of using mental models and frameworks. Yeah, and I just want to call for it. I, I had um, somebody, a guest on, Leanne Hughes, who I she is doing this activity of like two by Tuesday, where she's using a two by two matrix, and every week she's creating one of these matrices. And I I feel like I'm so inspired by her because I think it's a cool discipline to really force yourself to bring some clarity to create, you know, by creating this mental model around various things, you know, I'm, I'm like, it overwhelms me a little bit, like, whoa, that's a big commitment <laughs> to come up with like 52 um, mental models. But I, I think it's a really cool thing to kind of to play with. So um, I also, I did want to pull forward a couple of the mental models, because again, the book is full of these, so folks will have to check it out. But a couple that I think are relevant around both career and leadership, one around career that I wanted to see if you could speak to is the whole future self one where you talk about like thanking yourself or, or like, thank you or blame me. Like, can you speak to that one a little bit? Sure. Uh, it's very simple. It's just a frame. You know, some models are like, like you said, a four box matrix. Some frameworks are just a way of thinking, right? Going from point A to point B is a framework, right? The two questions that, that you're talking about, are the future self questions, with what I'm about to do is my would my future self is my future self going to thank me for it or blame me for it? And my perfect example of that is that you know Hagen Dazs chocolate peanut butter pint sitting in front of me. I would love to eat finish the whole thing, and I know I can because I've done it. But will my future self say thank you for doing that or blame me for doing that? Right. So sometimes that hitting the pause button and asking that question will keep us from going down a path from which there might be no return, right? So that's an example. So anything that we do, and it could be about taking a job offer, it could be any decision you're about to make. It just reminds us to ask that question. Because um, if you think about Marshall Goldsmith, I just attended a, a weekend conference. He's, he's, one of the, he's the number one executive coach in the world and he's the author of What Got You Here Won't Get You There. So I got, I got spent a whole week with him in the MG100 group two weeks ago. And one of his Buddhist philosophies and he talks about it in his new book, The Earned Life, is with every breath you take, it's a new you, right? So if you made a mistake, even like two minutes ago, you take another breath and you say, oh, I didn't do that. Old Todd did that from two minutes ago, right? So that's why his concept of feed forward is so effective as opposed, feedback is great. It tells you information about the past, but you can't change the past. You can't undo it. You can only learn from it. But so often we beat ourselves up over bad decisions or mistakes we made. Feed forward is like, okay, how, what can I do differently going forward based on what I experienced or what I just learned? So that, you know, I love that whole past self, future self concept and question because it really is helpful to help guide us um, by anticipating and looking back. So if you want to think about what do I want my leadership legacy to be? What do I want people to say about me at my retirement party? It's not going to happen magically. You need to say, what do I need to do between now and then for that to be a reality, right? For that to mm -hmm. actually happen. Yeah, I love all of what you just shared. There's a lot, there was a lot packed in there yes. because I think, and um, because I do think around making career decisions and choices and what you want for both your career and your life, you know, it's helpful to call forward your future self because your future self 
can, you know, will answer those questions a bit differently, right? Than if you were just asking your present self, like, do you want that ice cream? Like you're saying, (laughs) um, versus, you know, calling forward that future self and kind of using it as a, as a wise I, if you will, right? What are they seeing to help yeah. guide you in making a, a decision? So I really yeah. like like that. And I also appreciate the fa- past self, but also like the feet forward and kind of, again, it's that, it is that future self kind of calling yeah, forward. You want to actually coach yourself. Like it's great if you have a coach, but if not, be your own coach, right? Not all of us have a coach or have a coach in that minute that that's that decision you know sometimes my wife i'll say don't i'll say to her don't let me finish this right so then uh, this um but you have to you know ultimately you're accountable um but i i heard you once mention dory clark on one of your conversations and dory clark's new book is called the long game how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world and it's always that battle between short-term gratification and long-term i know you talk a lot about f- ambition and fulfillment right so a lot of times it's almost like the devil and angel on our shoulders they're sometimes battling it out and, you know, but ultimately the decision's up to us to make. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And I appreciate you bringing forward Dory, yes, and that her her philosophy. And yeah. I think it is, it's dancing between these different things. I think oftentimes, you know, we're talking about a lot of your models do simplify, right? Which is fabulous. And yet, yeah. and I think that's the power in them because of what I was going to say, and yet oftentimes, like our world is more complex and our decisions around our lives are more complex or, you know, they take more time than we might want, right? Like people, I even the, the long game is a pure, prime example going back to what you mentioned earlier, somebody kind of saying like, so Todd, how can I be where you are now? Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, you got to play the long game and then you'll, you know, then, <laughs> then you'll yeah. get it here. Um, but I am curious, like, I want to come back to stories as well, because one of the things that I think is interesting about stories is how they can be helpful and effective, both in like, as people stepping into leaders within organizations, as well as leading their own careers. And I, I'm curious if you think about like, I've kind of coached people and saying like, I encourage you to develop your own leadership stories where right. you're de- developing stories around what are your beliefs? How do you make decisions? What are your principles around leadership? Or, you know, and then from a career perspective, thinking about, you know, how, what is the career narrative you want to tell, you know? And so how do you want to craft your identity say through telling a story. So I'm curious how you think about those things and people leveraging storytelling and stepping into leadership for both work and life. Yeah, we could talk for hours about stories. As Just as we're wired for visually, like if you're looking at text or you're looking at an image, your mind almost magnetically will be drawn towards the image. It's just the way our brains are wired. Similarly, as human beings, we are wired for story. And sometimes we say, oh, I'm not a good storyteller. And then you say, oh, how was work today? Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. And then you launch into this story, right? I was once doing a, a CEO leadership, visual leadership workshop, and the CEO said, oh, I'm terrible at storytelling. I hate being asked to tell stories. And, and I said, well, why do you say that? He said, well, let me tell you, one time I was telling this story, and he launched into the story that about the time he told a story and it bombed, but the story just told was amazing, and there were so many le- lessons there. And everyone else looked at him like that was, I was like, do I have to say it or are you going to say it? And they're like, that was an amazing story. So don't ever... You know, limiting beliefs really shut us down. So don't say I can't draw. Don't say I'm not a storyteller. You know, kids tell stories. Grandparents tell stories. Culture is orally trans, you know, transmitted through stories. Um, verbal storytelling, oral storytelling existed before the written word even existed. So we're all storytellers. Aristotle said, you know, 2,000 years ago, 
Um, stories have a beginning, middle, and end. Stories have villains, victims, and heroes. There's a, usually a quest or a goal. There's some barrier, obstacle, or challenge that stands in the way. There's a resolution. There are lessons learned, right? So all of those elements go into a story. If you're on a job interview and the interviewer says, you know, they're trying to figure out, are you capable of doing this job? It's a behavioral interview question where they say, Kathy, tell me about a time where you faced a similar situation to this. And they tell your story, right? The best way to not be caught like a deer in the headlights is to prepare some of your stories in advance. Keep a journal. When things I can, this is part of my OCD. I started keeping a journal my first day of college back in 1980, and I have not missed a single day since. So that is, I'm on journal number 42, and I have not missed a day ever since. And it could just be had a good day or what I did that day. Look back. With it, when I sat down the rock and I had to think about, all right, where would where did that happen? You know, my I was able to leverage my journals 20 years ago, 30 years ago to capture the details of those stories. So the physical act of writing something down cements it in your brain and makes it easier to recall when you need it later on than if it's just out of sight, out of mind forever. So I encourage people, keep a journal. Um, especially if you're going on the job interview or you're pitching a client, because people are going to ask those questions from your past, even though past, you know, past successes don't indicate future results or whatever that saying is. We do want to have stories at our disposal that we could use to inspire and to motivate and to inform people. Mm. Yes, I love that. And I love encouraging people to both to make sure they absolutely have to have those stories if they're going on job interviews or if they're, you know, even just telling their overall narrative. And I think it's helpful for people, especially you talk about the roller coaster of a career and you need to be able to have a narrative around that and not just for telling other people. I actually think when people go through career transitions and people that I work with, that you can have an identity crisis, right? And so it's helpful to really think about like, how am I going to frame my narrative and actually take control of that narrative as well. Um, so I think that's really important. And then I love the idea too, of like, again, really being thoughtful, especially if you're a leader to have those those stories at hand where you can really be in, instructive and in teaching people. And it's about both like, okay, well, what values do you want to st instill in your team or in your company? We'll demonstrate those through stories. Or yeah. if you're saying, here's how I make decisions, like what are my beliefs about how we should operate? Like having stories around those can really help embed them, I think, within one's organization. Yeah, stories are containers for culture, right? So mm. that's, that's uh, there are success stories, but there's also failure stories. Stories. There are cautionary tales. Don't let this happen to you. So if you're a manager and you just hired a new employee, you could say, don't ever do this or don't ever let this happen. Or you could say, when I had your job, let me tell you about the worst mistake I ever made. And this, and don't you think that employee is going to be sitting at the edge of their seat wanting to hear that? So you know, being told, do this, don't do that. And again, whether you're a parent with a child or you're a boss with an employee or you know, uh, you're talking to a client, those stories are what bring things to life, right? They illustrate, they, they're emotional, uh, they're memorable. So there's so much power in stories. And uh, I have about 20 books just on story, the art and the science of storytelling. Um, and again, whether you're a screenwriter or you're just, you know, someone who's sharing a story around the campfire or talking to, you know, friends telling the story of your vacation, just think of, you know, use it as an opportunity in storytelling. And you know how much detail? Too little is too doesn't paint a picture. Too much will bore people to death. So even just figuring out how much detail and what details to include depends on the situation, your audience, and what your objective is. So there's so many things that you know. There's so many resources out there on how to become a better storyteller. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, and I I wanted to pull forward one of the stories I know, and I'm going to kind of throw this in here. It's kind of a, you know, a jump or a leap, but it's one of the stories that you shared that I think is actually, it just resonated, a lot resonated with me, but this is one that also... I think was interesting from a career perspective as well, was this story around why it's more important to be interested than interesting. And this idea, part of the reason I'm pulling this forward is like how people continue to struggle with this idea of networking. I'm putting networking in quotes, people can't see my hands, but it's like, I love this story. I mean, it's not the first time that I've heard it, but others may not have heard this. And I mm-hmm. think it's an interest, it's an important I think, takeaway and lesson, right? And stories often have these lessons um, that I think people can learn from. Do you mind just saying a little bit more about why is it important to be interested than interesting? Yeah, I mean, my story, I didn't originate that phrase. I mean, that goes back, I don't know who originated, but Dale Carnegie and How to Win Friends and Influence People, that's one of his... one of his principles, and I was a Dale Carnegie trainer earlier in my career. Long story short, my wife and I were at a New Year's Eve party, and we were talking to this actory guy in the kitchen who was just going on and on about his career and how amazing he is, but he couldn't get auditions and he couldn't get parts. Um, he never once asked me or my wife what we did. And he said, oh, the main, I really need to meet this one casting director. I'll call him Mr. X because I don't want to give away his name. And then he left. And my wife and I just looked at each other. That casting director that he wanted to meet was my best friend and college roommate. And we had just had dinner with him before we got to the New Year's Eve party. And my wife is a casting director and he never even once asked what she did. So here's the chance. If he was more interested in us, rather than trying to be interesting and impress everyone, he might've connected with us and built this relationship on a human level. And everyone always, when they hear this story, go, oh, they hit their heads like, what a missed opportunity. And could we have volunteered that information? Yes, but that's happened so many times that we just decided not to. And we were curious how far, if he'd ever get to that point, but he didn't, he did his monologue and then he left. But he really missed an opportunity to one, to meet some nice people and develop relationships, but also people could have helped him, um, but he never gave that chance. So um, that's, I'll leave it right there. So uh, that's yeah, the story. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, and I, you, you noted something that I've heard other people talk about in around this same topic, which is like connect versus being focused on impressing people, yeah. right? And I always so think when you meet someone, instead of saying, how could this person help me be thinking, how can I help them? And sometimes what goes around comes around. Sometimes it doesn't. But I always talk about four Gs. I have two in my book, but I added, I always talk about being genuine and being generous. I talk about that in my book. But my friend uh, John Baldoni wrote a book called Grace. So I added, you know, do it gracefully. And Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick, who I got to know, wrote a book called Leading with Gratitude. So my four Gs now are be genuine, be generous, be grateful and do it with grace. So those are my four Gs and they're good principles to keep in mind when you're trying to connect with people, whether it's on LinkedIn, just be thinking, you know, where are the commonalities, but also how can I help, who can I connect you with? Who can I introduce you with? As opposed to me, me, me all the time where so many people start with. Yep. 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 No, that's great. I, so I need to start to wrap us up, Todd, but I, and I know I could talk to you for a long time, but I want to try to squeeze three final questions in. So one is, and this one might be tough. I didn't get leave enough time for this particular question, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how people can think about keeping, sustaining their career, making it regenerative, over the decades? Like what are some top of mind things that they should be keeping in mind around that? Well, my book, in chapter 51, I talk about spanning the decades, career advice for every age and every stage. So whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, 70s, and beyond, 
we're all at different stages, right? And sometimes, again, it's not a linear, linear path. I never in a million, I always say I'm a three beach guy by nature, a back of the room, behind the scenes bookworm. I talk loud and fast because I'm from New York, but this is just, this is me pushing myself way out of my comfort zone. So if you had asked me, told me 20 years ago that I would have done a TED talk, teaching at NYU in Columbia, writing a book, doing 150 plus podcasts, I would have said, who are you talking about? Because that's definitely not me. And yeah, that, that is me today, right? So we could all evolve, change, grow, try new things, fail. We have imposter syndrome holding us back, saying, who am I to write a book, to do a TED Talk? You need to kind of, you know, almost trick your mind. There's a principle called act as if. If you act as if, you could do it, you could do it, right? So there's all, you know, we could have, we could talk about this for hours, but those are my key tips is don't let those inner constraints hold you back. Babe Ruth said, don't let the fear of swinging don't let the fear of striking out keep you from swinging for the fences, right? So mm. you want to put yourself out there and you're going to fall and you're going to fail, but you get back up, you learn and you move forward. So you model yourself, you you build relationships, you, you know, genuine relationships where you support each other, give each other tips. And um, so those are some of the, 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 the ideas off the top of my head is like the you, the future you could be very, you know, what's you 2.0 or 5.0, right? We, we need to constantly be resilient and reinvent ourselves. Mm, I love that. And then I wanted to ask, like, what's a tip that you might have or something that you do to make your own life plus work more sustainable? Like, how do you keep it all sustainable? Well, I have no work-life balance, if that's even a thing, or work-life integration, because uh, when you work for yourself, there's no off switch. In fact, I keep this, this for those who are seeing, there's a the dimmer, right? It's a dimmer that we turn up and down. There's no on off switch. So you can, you know, it's very hard for me to flip my brain off because I'm always coming up with ideas, whether I'm in the shower or just about to fall asleep. So just finding some way of not burning out and giving yourself a break and, you know, doing, having hobbies that are enjoyable and escapist. Like we're watching a Netflix show last night, but it's so much reminded me of work that it was, I felt like I was working, right? So I said to my wife, so we put on like an old Alfred Hitchcock from 1950s, right? Just to, you know, get out of our own head. So that's what I would say is like, figure out a, out a way to turn it off just so you can not burn out and you can stay fresh and rejuvenated. Mm, that's great. Well, this has been great, Todd. I think as we're both saying, there's a lot of ground we yeah. could cover, but people can learn more certainly in your book. And I I, I just want to ask a final, like what's a final one insight? I mean, you've already shared so many, but what's a final insight or action that you might leave with folks to kind of take having listened to this conversation? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll, the quote I end my TED talk with, and it's also in my book, um, from the French novelist Marcel Proust, he said that the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. So that's what I would say. It's just you could do your regular thing, but just be attuned and aware to things and people around you that maybe you haven't noticed or appreciated before. That's that's mm. what I would leave people with. I love that. And you gave some great examples of like where people lose out when they don't do yeah. that. Right. So thank you. And so, Todd, where can people find you if they want to stay in touch? Sure. The best way is my website, toddchurches.com. Feel free to download my list of the top 52 books that most influenced me and my thinking and join my email list or link in with me. Just say you saw me on Kathy's show and uh, happy to continue the conversation on LinkedIn because I spend 
probably half my time on LinkedIn. So I, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, and I can attest that folks can see that Todd has a ton of books behind him, his own yeah. bookshelf and seems like a bookstore himself. So yeah, I'm people sure think that I'm this... a bookstore, but uh, I've been reading one business week since 1998. So I passed 1200 uh, recently and uh, they're still here. Wow. So we're running out of shelf space. But uh, yes, if you have any, need any book recommendations, just send me a note. Yes. Fabulous. Well, Todd, thank you again for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kathy. Great talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.